Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast, where we address topics relevant to today's consumers and farmers. I'm Preston Schrader. And I'm Jason Carr. Preston and I are Technology Development Reps, or TDRs, for Bear Crop Science. As TDRs, our primary mission is to help solve agronomic challenges that farmers face and to understand how to best utilize the bear suite of products, including traits, genetics, crop protection, as well as digital tools, to create solutions that are tailored to each grower's unique farm. We have a couple goals with this podcast, the first being to help farmers across the country to address challenges that they face throughout the growing season while introducing them to game-changing technology that has the potential to radically benefit their farming practices. We also want to provide the consumers of ag commodities who are not necessarily involved in agriculture with information about the practices farmers engage in and the reasons behind them, hopefully provide a greater level of understanding and comfort with how their food is produced. For today's episode, we have a little bonus. Rather than our typical single guest, today we have two guests. Both of them are employees of Bayer Crop Science. Matthew Carroll is Corn Insect Resistance Management Lead, and Bill Moore is Insect Resistance Management Cross Crop Pipeline Lead. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast today, Bill and Matthew. Bill, do you want to go ahead and start off with a brief introduction of your educational background and your current role and responsibilities with Bayer? Well, how much time do you have? So basically, so I'm originally from Oregon. I'm a West Coast boy. Um, Have bachelor's degrees in both entomology and botany, uh, master's master's and PhD degrees in entomology from University of California, Riverside, uh, specializing in pest management and microbial control and sec pathology. After graduate school, I, I was an associate so it's basically an assistant associate and full professor of entomology at Auburn University in Alabama for 19 years. Um, taught basically most entomology classes, uh, general entomology, economic entomology, biocontrol, insect toxicology, insect pathology. Um, and I've been at Bayer now for um, basically 10 years uh, in regulatory um, IRM, insect resistance management. Uh, I'm work primarily in what we call pipelines. So these are, these are products that um, are somewhat developed but not totally developed yet before regulatory starts looking at their safety packages and evaluations. Um, I'm involved with corn, cotton, and soy pests. Um, primarily now I'm involved with the corn rootworm, um, which is the major, major pest of corn, certainly below ground in the United States and working with new technologies, new protein packages, as well as RNAi, which is RNA interference, which we'll get into later. Great. And Matthew, it seems like I've known you for 20 years. How about you? Right. So I, you know, I'm, I'm not as uh, well-traveled as Bill. Bill's older than me. I just want to point that out. Really much, <laughs> much older than I am. I'm so, going to start shaking my cane at you, buddy. <laughs> so I've... So I did my undergraduate degree at Colorado State University as uh, bioagricultural and rangeland science with a focus on entomology. I took all the graduate courses they had before I finished my my undergraduate degree. Went on to Montana State where I did my master's in wheat, uh, looking at wheat streak mosaic virus, wheat curl mites, and the impacts of various control practices and cover crops, uh, green manures on uh, incidence and severity of disease. Went from there to the University of Minnesota and I did a PhD on aphid transmitted diseases, specifically potato virus Y, potato leaf roll virus, and seed potatoes. 
where I also looked at uh, developing a landscape-based risk index based on hyperspectral imagery. And from there, I went to do a postdoc at the US EPA, where I continued uh, use of satellites and airplanes, looking at genetically modified crops to see whether or not you could actually uh, tell the difference between a BT and a non-BT uh, field. Uh, you really can't, just not spoiling that for anybody. <laughs> I, from there, uh, started at Monsanto doing resistance modeling. I did that for a few years and moved from there to uh, corn defense, which basically what I've been doing um, from that point on. And that's basically handling post-commercial post stewardship, conditions of registration, and helping develop packages and IRM plans for products we're going to submit to EPA. And I'm also the chair of the Agricultural Biotechnology Stewardship Technical Committee, which is a joint industry group. Uh, the IRM subcommittee chair of that. So I sort of, sort of align and, and get the cats to herd in, in one direction in terms of uh, submission of documents and so on for group monitoring activities. So uh, suffice it to say, you guys have a ton of experience in this field and um, you're definitely experts that we're talking to today. So we appreciate that. Well, make no mistake, Matt's almost as old as I am. <laughs> Ten year difference. Ten year difference. He has a smaller cane. <laughs> So Matt, uh, can you uh, give us a little bit of basic background for our listeners that maybe don't understand the biology of the Western corn rootworm? Sure. So, um, you know, Western corn rootworm is is a is a fairly widespread pest. It's documented and feels like pretty much uh, any place it grows corn has has the potential for Western corn rootworm. We we have we see. Western corn rootworm reports from Oregon all the way over into uh, Maine and, and New York. So it's it's you know, fairly well traveled. It's an annual pest. That means there's really only one generation per year. Uh, Western corn rootworm feeds in its damaging stage is the larval stage. It feeds underground. It's uh, on corn roots. Um, not surprisingly, eggs tend to hatch about the time that, that corn is, is starting to really do well, around the you know, V2, V3, and you know, they're, they're happily feeding on roots. Uh, so where you grow corn or where corn does really well, you tend to have a lot of western corn rootworm problems. Uh, it's a bit simplistic, but I, I think that's, that's pretty decent. So we recently uh, spoke with Dr. Joe Spencer from the University of Illinois, and, and rootworm has been called a billion-dollar pest, but he said it's probably closer to two billion or even more. Well, you know, root, rootworm is, is the most, one of the most significantly injuring pests in, in corn, you know, ignoring diseases and, and weeds and other issues. Of, of everything that a farmer has to deal with, western corn rootworm is, is a significant challenge. Because it's feeding underground, it, it's incredibly hard to, to scout for, so you really don't know year in, year out, you know, what, what you have under the field, so you tend to take proactive measures to, to manage it. That uh, can be through chemistry, that can be through uh, use of BT crops, uh, but you, you really don't know if you have pressure or not. So you're applying and spending money on things 
really in some cases uh, in, in a complete absence of information. I, I would just add here that I think you know, we've been calling it a billion dollar test for a long time. So if you if you bring into account for inflation, think of the increased cost it takes to, to grow a, a crop now. Plus, I think the value of corn is going to fluctuate quite a bit, and that therefore is also going to help determine what what a farmer can afford to to spend to protect their crop based on the value of it. Um, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it gets up to two billion dollars, but. Uh, one billion, two billion, that's still a lot of money to control an insect here in the US. So and, and keep, keep, keep just just keep in mind the original billion dollar estimate was in the absence of a lot of the current control measures growers have at, at their disposal. And it includes annual yield losses. So you know, just just keep in mind that it's you know, with inflation, like Bill said, it could could be a billion, could be higher than a billion, uh, but you know, context is important, and that original estimate is, is quite old. Absolutely. Not only is it expensive, the western corn rootworm is a hard pest to control. Can you speak a little bit about the propensity of the western corn rootworm to evolve resistance to control uh, mechanisms? This, this is where Bill and I can tee off. How much time do you, do you have? So western <laughs> corn rootworm is a genius at, at evolving resistance. Um, you know, it has documented resistance to a, a number of, of Synthetic chemistries, pyrethroids, uh, carbamates, OPs. So I, I know at least those three are, are fairly well well known. Um, you know, more recently, you know, it's, it's evolved resistance to several of the BTs that, that are commonly used to control it. Um, doesn't mean that they don't fully work, but you know, definitely seeing some challenges to the technologies that are out there, whether they're uh, BT technologies or whether they're, you know, synthetic insecticides. Well, so maybe we put this in the context. Um, so if, if we're talking about the Midwest, you know, maybe we also have European corn borer or, or other lepidopter caterpillars out there. And, you know, if you see, you know, one or two eggs per plant or maybe, say, three or four larvae per plant, that's a big deal. Um, we have fields of corn rootworm where we may have between four, six, or even more thousand eggs per plant. And so just the sheer number of insects that are out there in any, any particular field can be extremely large, which is one of the parts of the evolution of developing resistance. Well, given that this pest has a potential to have a lot of them out there, as well as its ability to overcome resistance, what do you recommend for farmers to help extend the long-term durability of the current traits that we have? And, you know, that would also apply to upcoming traits, but thinking specifically about the current traits. Well, that's, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about this with, with both people internally, between companies, and with growers. And, you, you know, the, the best way to extend the durability of traits is you know of course that to make sure one that that you're using a, a really efficacious product in this case something that's a pyramid that you have refuge available and you know of course for most of the the corn belt they have the ability to access you know seed blend products either refuge in a bag from you know bear or seed blends from from other companies Corteva and and so on. Uh, you know, out, outside of that, you know, not, not planting continuous corn long term is, is really important. Introducing some form of crop rotation, 
either annually or, or semi-annually is, is really you know, essential to delaying resistance evolution. So, you know, if you think about, so Matt just described what we call resistance management. And resistance management is a subset of integrated pest management, which is something that basically every academic and extensionist recommends for all growers to use. And so, you know, whether it's chemical or cultural, behavioral, you name it, you know, we should be using as many different things in our toolbox as we can and not really rely on any, any one particular uh, control strategy. Definitely. I uh, just had a thought, actually. So for the consumers out there listening, um, we have refuge technology uh, built into the bag. Could you explain that to a consumer or maybe a farmer who doesn't understand the concept of refuge in a bag? Sure. So, you know, ref, refuge in a bag is, is real simple. It's, you know, pre, previously what we had is, you know, you would, the grower would be forced to plant a block of, of traded material. He would get a bag of 100% traded seed and then you'd have to go buy, make a selection on a, a bag of, of non-traded seed. So what Refuge in a Bag does is it, at the manufacturing plant, is they take a small percentage of refuge seed, in this, in this case 5% non-BT refuge seed, which, which does not have that trait targeting the Western, Western corn rootworm or rootworm complex, and they mix that in the bag during the manufacturing process. So that gets a non-systematic distribution through the bag, so when you plant it in the field, it is interspersed you know, th throughout the field rather than being in a block. And that's the difference in terminology when you hear people talk about structured or block refuge and seed blends or refuge in a bag. The latter references the, the mixing of refuge seed in the bag, and it was a long-winded explanation just to get to the point of me saying it's mixing refuge seed in the bag, but <laughs> and that's can, pretty good. And can you tell and, us... And a, Go ahead, Bill. Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, obviously there's IRM considerations for doing this, the, the refuge in the bag or seed blend, but there's a lot of advantages to the grower as well doesn't have to worry about differences in planting, when he can get out to plant a different field with his uh, uh, non-traded seed. Um, and, you know, obviously, he doesn't have to worry about compliance because compliance is built into the bag itself. So there's a lot of advantages to growers to plant um, refuge in a bag or seed blends as well. And can we, can we take it down even to a little bit simpler level? And, and why? what is the purpose of the refuge? Sure. I mean, so refuge at its at its fundamental basis, when what's critical, as Bill was pointing out, to, to insect resistance management, is you, you want to delay the evolution of resistance, and a, and a critical component of that is having plants not expressing the trait targeting the insect pests, so that they are producing susceptible individuals to mate with those rare resistant ones coming out of the field. There can be a little bit more complex in the explanation, but that, that's fundamentally what it's, it's there to do. The, the only other part of that is when you have the progeny from those, that mix of the resistant insects mating with the susceptible, um, those, those progeny or the, the babies of those are functionally susceptible to the BT trait. Yeah, that's, and that's exactly right. Thank you for clearing that up for us. To shift gears, so we've identified the western corn rootworm as a major challenge for corn farmers across the U.S. and even in other countries like Europe. What is some upcoming trait technology that you guys are excited about? So um, basically in 
2017, our, our latest product, which was called SmartStacks Pro, was registered by the U.S. EPA. Um, not, yet, not yet commercially available because we're still waiting for total global approval. Um, what makes this product unique and exciting to a lot of people, including myself, is that so SmartStacks Pro is basically SmartStacks, which is a product that's been out for quite a while, which basically against rootworm has one BT from Monsanto buyer and then one protein from Corteva or Dow or Corteva. Um, that's SmartStacks and it's been out a while. What we did is we took that product and we made it better by putting in one more in, uh, rootworm trait, which is based on RNAi. Um, RNAi stands for RNA interference. Uh, basically, um, all this really is is um, most people know about what DNA is. Um, DNA is basically the blueprint um, to make primarily proteins and other compounds in, in all organisms. Um, basically, you need to go from DNA to messenger RNA. Uh, messenger RNA is basically what helps, helps make the proteins. And RNAi is a natural process. We, we think it really evolved for protecting against viruses. Um, inside of cells. Um, most organisms have this, and basically what, what RNAi does is it, it destroys the message um, that, that is needed to make a protein. So essentially what we're doing is, is we're, we're, we're giving the insect a message to essentially destroy a, the message for a protein that it needs to survive. The neat thing about RNAi, at least for SmartStacks Pro, is that you know, when we think about, you know, using chemical insecticides and, and we, we, we have replaced a lot of chemical insecticides with the BT technology, and part of the reason is the history of safe use of BT over 50 years, that it's extremely uh, specific in what it controls. It's very environmentally safe. Um, this RNAi technology is as safe, if not safer, than most of our BTs. So there's been extensive testing for non-targets and mammalian safety for RNAi that's in SmartStacks Pro. And essentially the specificity or the toxicity of this product is against only several beetle species that are related to corn rootworm. So it's not toxic to even other beetles. It's certainly not toxic to lepidopter bees, you know, monarch butterflies, uh, you name it. Um, if you're not a rootworm, you're probably not going to be susceptible to this thing. So, so basically RNAi works differently. It's uh, Again, it's, we think it's evolved primarily for virus control because a, a lot of your virus is double-stranded RNA, which is what we're putting into the plant or the, what the plant actually produces to control the insect. And essentially all we're doing is, is we're knocking out the message that the, that the cell needs to make a particular protein, and we just find a protein that is really, really important for, that, for the rootworm to survive we've actually find a sequence of the RNA that is more or less unique to rootworm. In fact, that sequence is found, or even parts of that sequence are really only found in related species. So it's extremely specific, in most cases even more specific than the real safe BTs that we've been using for 50 years. It also is, it has a different way of controlling insects, so it complements the, the normal mode of action of BT um, which we're always worried about resistance developing to our different control strategies. So RNAi is, is just a, a whole new uh, control strategy for controlling insects that we're complementing the BT um, that's in the plant. That's why we talk about SmartStacks Pro being pyramiding 
Um, and we actually talk about it as pyramiding three modes of action. So one BT, another BT, and now we have the RNAi. So what this should be allow us to do is to help to give the farmers uh, more durability or allow them to grow this product for a longer period of time before we, before we need to provide them with yet another, another new product. For the listener to kind of put this new trait discovery timeline in perspective, what, how long does it take from discovery to commercial launch to bring a product like this to market? And maybe if you want to even talk about the work that goes into that, uh, feel free just to take it wherever you want to take it. So, so the canned speech that we give is typically 13 years from discovery to launch. Um, in some cases, based on the current global climate, um, it may be close to 15 years. Um, the, the quote we've heard for many years is about $135 million dollars to get to launch. We've heard economists say that that's probably underestimating and it may be upwards of $200 million um, in cost. A lot of that is in discovery. A lot of that is in regulatory to make sure that it's safe. You guys are aware that there's a lot to go into field testing basically everywhere that this is going to be commercialized to make sure that it represents the growing conditions in that area. Um, the one thing that's different about the transgenics is that we're required to do a lot more resistance management, which includes monitoring, um, which means we have to have a monitoring um, uh, process in place by the time of commercialization. Um, a lot of what Matt does is um, basically look at um, potential problems when a grower buys our product and is not performing as expected. Matt has to sort of step in and figure out what, what the, the cause of that is. Um, so, you know, one thing that's interesting about, in fact, I just had to talk to a colleague internally about this today, is that resistance management basically starts from almost discovery to post-commercialization. So, so we're in it for the long haul, um, but, it, but it takes, that's one reason why, for example, you know, we've, we've heard of resistance to the BTs for a while, and we've, we've had this product for a, quite a while, but it takes so long to get something in the market that, well, I can see where there be some cases where resistance can develop just because we don't have, it takes too long, it takes a long time for us to get another product that could help alleviate some of those resistance concerns. So you talk about the time it takes and the, and the money that goes into bringing a product to market. And um, we probably evaluate hundreds of products that don't make it to market. I don't know what that number is, but maybe you can speak about that just a little bit. And then as a follow-up, is there anything upcoming in the future that that you can tell us a little bit about at this time? So historically, for chemical insecticides, you know what I've been trained is that they have to evaluate at least ten thousand compounds to find one that works. And you know when when we say something works, it has to be efficacious, so it has to give you the kind of control that you want it to control. Um, when you go when you talk about transgenics, it has to work in the plant. In other words, the plant has to like it and you can't see any detrimental effects of the plant itself, which is also a big ask. Um, it has to be specific enough. That's where there's this big dilemma is where, you know, a lot of people want something to be very, very safe. We want it to only control one pest, but a grower can't afford to control every pest with a, with a different compound. At the same time, you run the risk of having it too broad to where you're controlling, you have activity against things that you don't want, such as monarchs, honeybees, and other things. So as far as, so, you know, clearly we're looking at new, at new products or new, new traits. Um, all, the, all the company is 
one of the neat things about rootworm is because it's such a big pest, everyone's always trying to find new things against it. So um, I was just at a meeting where we have almost entire symposium dealing with just rootworm control because it is a billion-dollar pest. So yes, we have we have a um, our next generation is after SmartSax Pro. Um, we're looking at um, multiple proteins that also work differently. Um, that also is probably even more efficacious than SmartSax Pro. Um, so we're still going on the same the same timeline, um, the same paradigm that we've been working on before. So we're clearly not stopping at SmartSax Pro. And uh, we've got things that are that are probably even better than uh, SmartStacks Pro. It's just going to take a while to get it out. Great. From a consumer perspective, I think the uh, specificity aspect of RNAi and transgenic technology is is a really important thing to understand. When I do field days, I like to carry around a uh, copy of a Illinois Natural History Survey bulletin where they talk about armyworm control. And their recommendation is to mix arsenic with molasses and apply it over a field to control this insect pest. To go from a technology like that that probably hurts the family dog, you know, these farmers don't have PPE when they're applying them, to now we have this transgenic technology that folks like you guys are uh, creating and have a robust pipeline, of you, as you've described, I think is, is tremendous from a long-term sustainability standpoint. So one 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 thing that you know, so I, I was I was since I am old, um, I was involved with entomology and crop protection before the transgenics came out. And one of the best things about the transgenics is that it really limits exposure because what you're really dealing with here is you know the main advantage of transgenics is that it hits cryptic pests or pests that are sort of hiding, if you will. So if you think about our major pests we're controlling in the U.S., you've got rootworm that are in the soil, you've got European corn borer that's inside the stalk, and you have the, the ear-feeding insects that are inside the ear, which makes it very difficult to control with insecticides anyway. Um, but these insecticides are typically either seed-applied or, in many cases, aerial-applied, so you have environmental contamination. With the transgenics, you're expressing it only in certain tissues within the plant, so you're, you're so as safe as those, those traits are, you also, which means the hazard is really low, your exposure is very low, therefore your risk, risk which is um, hazard times exposure is going to be extremely low. Now you couple that with something like uh, RNAi, which is very, very, very safe to begin with, and you have essentially no risk at all. Well, thank you both. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Do you have any advice for a, for a corn farmer that would help him in his operation? I, I think uh, Bill, Bill, Bill covered some of it and I covered some of it, but the big thing is diversity and control. Don't over rely on, on just one, one tool in the tool chest, now, whether it's an insecticide or if it's a BT trait. You know, integrated pest management is and has been successful for a really good reason. If you're trying to manage rootworm, I, I know there are business uh, and operational concerns that may lock you into a continuous corn rotation, but introducing even one, one crop rotation every three years can be tremendously beneficial. So, you know, diversity in, in what you plant, diversity in what you're using to manage, and then planting the most efficacious, you know, products that, that you possibly can in terms of BT. And as Bill was saying earlier, you know, using the most efficacious, over, you know, 
chemical insecticides as well. It's it, these are sound principles, and like you know the the comment not to rely on just one component of a pest management strategy is a really sound one. Um, and, and just to, to, to go back really quick and, and then, you know, maybe rephrase an earlier question, you asked me, you know, really, really uh, about western corn rootworm and, and a, you know, a few things I just wanted to bring up again about that and on, on top of what I already said is, you know, so it's, it's a, the, the primary concern, the most economically significant pest in the Midwest, you know, you called it a billion dollar bug and it's certainly costly to the growers to manage in terms of, you know, yield and, and what, what they need to do to control it. But this, this is something that was, you know, first, first observed in, in the late 1800s in the U.S. It was recognized as a pest in, in the early 1900s. So it's been around a while and growers have been struggling with it for a really long time. You know, the, the larvae feed underground. They're incredibly hard to scout for. They're incredibly hard to, you know, to manage effective. And that's the, the, the real beauty of, of what BT brings to the table here is, it's it's actually providing something that's targeting you know that the injuring stage uh, of the pest, and it's proven to be extremely effective and it's proven to be extremely beneficial for growers, and it's it's really helped protect yield. So a, a closing statement that, that I'd like to make is that so obviously industries involved, you know, they obviously you know we need to eat to um, you know we're trying to produce products, but products are becoming harder and harder to find that have the Characteristics that both the grower and the consumer want, which is you know basically high efficacy, but also very very safe. And these are becoming you know few and far between, and take longer to to, to get to. So as I said before, you know, we've known about resistance to some of these BTs for a number of years now, and yet we still have we still don't have a product out there because it, it just takes so long to find them and to do all the regulatory. Um, work to show that it's safe before we can get it out there. And so, you know, the, the ask would be is, you know, from, from a grower standpoint is, you know, to, you know, to, to basically use up or rely on a, on a technology, especially in an in industrial technology, um, you know, those are not necessarily unlimited. And uh, especially from a transgenic standpoint, um, you know, to expect that these will roll out basically every time we see resistance uh, may not be able to happen in the near future. So. It, you know, increasing durability um, and decreasing resistance concerns is, is uh, I think, something that I think all of us should uh, um, try to achieve. And, and, and uh, maybe a better answer around resistance than I gave earlier is, you know, corn rootworms proven to be over, uh, you know, the nearly 100 years that people have been struggling with it. And, and as Bill pointed out, it's a prolific animal. It's evolved resistance to most of the chemical insecticides that have been used to, to, to control it to, to some degree, or at least have you know, documented cases where they've shown it to be resistant. You know, the re, you know re, reports have on uh, BT resistance. You know, pretty much all the products that are out there have been in uh, various farming news articles. So it's it's shouldn't be news to a lot of people that you know control technologies. Uh, need to be properly stewarded, and that's that's the importance behind diversifying what what you're using. So, you know, BT crops are still a valuable tool here. They're still incredibly effective on on the vast majority of acreage, and that that's really what I want to get across. Is you know just because 
people are, are seeing uh, cases where uh, the products are being challenged. Uh, in, in most cases, growers are, are pretty happy with what they have. Uh, yields are, are coming in, you know, where, where they, I guess, would like to see them. Uh, you know, higher is always better is, is what I understand, but, you know, they're not gone. Uh, the technology still has a, a lot of value in the marketplace. Those are great answers. Uh, gentlemen, we really appreciate your time here this afternoon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.